This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the biogeography or the distribution of life in the Grand Canyon. Biogeography is the study of the distribution of life because that's a spatial topic. That means how is life distributed in and around mountains, across continents. It could be from microsite distributions or, say, from the mouth of a cave back into the dark. Biogeography also has a lot of evolutionary components to it because uh, oftentimes the distribution of life forms is very much regulated by evolutionary process. How things can move, for example, strongly regulated by their evolution. That's Larry Stevens, an evolutionary ecologist on the Colorado Plateau. Larry has worked with the Museum of Northern Arizona for the last couple of decades as the curator of biology there. Today we are talking with Larry about his work with the biogeography of the Grand Canyon. So biogeography, like you said, can occur in locations more commonly such as mountains, islands, but you've studied the effect in large, deep canyons, and more specifically, the Grand Canyon. What made you want to first undertake this study? In reviewing the literature on biogeography, and there there are many textbooks and entire journals devoted to the topic, I couldn't find any reference to how large, deep canyons on the face of the earth, both terrestrial and uh, submarine, how those features affected the distribution of life in and around them. I spent a lot of time in Grand Canyon, so this became a a pretty obvious question to me to to ask is, how does that large deep feature shape the distribution of life in and around it? So the present day biodiversity in the Grand Canyon is due to a large part to the complex geological history, which has helped create these ecological gradients in the canyon. And I just wanted to talk a bit about the forces that led to such unique biodiversity. And by this, I'm getting to elevation, sunlight, things like that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very broad question, but I wanted, I wanted to touch a bit on why there's such unique biodiversity as you go up and down in the canyon itself. The distribution of life in a large deep canyon like Grand Canyon is influenced by a broad array of physical factors, as well as recent and geologic time. The complex array of environmental gradients that emerges that we experience when we hike into Grand Canyon, for example, the temperature change, the shading that we get uh, when we're walking down a north-facing slope versus a south-facing slope. Uh, these are important influences that are very long-term, of course, on the, on the distribution of, of life within it. Plants, animals all respond to light environments, thermal gradients. Uh, the, the amount of moisture in the, in, in, in the environment. And all of that can change over time. And by time, we're talking about not only the, the actual evolution of the canyon as a landform itself, uh, uh, probably a fairly recent five to 10 million year process, but also the evolutionary history of the organisms that occur there. So when we look at, a say, a Mormon tea plant growing on the, on the slopes of Grand Canyon or, uh, or anywhere here in the Southwest, that's a lineage that goes back you know, more than 200 million years. The behaviors of that plant, how it's pollinated when it reproduces and, and uh, the conditions that it requires for germination, all those factors are very, very ancient and control 
the distribution of that organism in the, in the landscape. So the, the physical factors that are most obviously important are things like elevation. Elevation controls climate to a large degree here in the Southwest. Cooler, wetter conditions at high elevation, hotter, drier conditions at low elevation. One thing that became very apparent in, in beginning study of large deep canyons is that those temperature factors and, and climatic factors vary in relation to the aspect of a slope. A south facing slope at high elevation is actually a fairly pleasant environment as opposed to say a north facing slope at, at, uh, at high elevation. This is something that Seahart Merriam looked at and actually I think uh, Alexander von Humboldt also noticed in, in, uh, in his studies of the biogeography of plant life on volcanoes. So this issue of aspect is a kind of a shaper of the local microclimate. And conditions are such that most of our trees and shrubs in a place like Grand Canyon, the plant species might reach its uh, highest elevation on a south-facing slope and its, and its lowest elevation on a north-facing slope. This is true of Ponderosa pine and virtually all the other trees and shrubs that are native in the, in the environment. So the role of aspect is kind of important, more important, I think, than we, than we really understand. And it becomes much magnified in a, in, a, in a deep canyon where a south-facing slope is really a very different world than a north-facing slope. In a large, deep canyon, you might have a north-facing slope at our latitude here, about 35 to 40 degrees north latitude. The north-facing slopes get no sunlight whatsoever in the, in the winter months. So the slopes tend to stay frozen. It's a very different uh, situation than on a south-facing slope, immediately opposite to that on the, on the other side of the canyon, where the south-facing slope may receive sunlight every day of the year. And some very interesting things that might go on with that. Um, that would mean that freezing and thawing is probably more active on the south-facing slope than the north-facing slope. Although I haven't studied this in detail, I certainly can ask the question of whether aspect is influencing the erosion rates of Grand Canyon differentially. South-facing slopes, freezing and thawing every day in the winter, probably much more geologic activity, uh, much more prone to, uh, to erosion. And that freezing and thawing is really the, the major mechanism of expansion of Grand Canyon. And so south-facing slopes might be retreating faster than north-facing slopes. And that's certainly the case in the middle of Grand Canyon. The south rim, Below it is a north-facing slope, very, very steep and kind of short, steep trails to, down to the floor of the canyon. On the north rim, which is a south-facing slope, the trails are rather long. It's really a, a kind of a broad, uh, low, lower angle uh, line of cliffs there. So perfectly good question to ask, is that, is that really a function, part, at least partly a function of, of aspect and the erosion rates related to freezing and thawing? That's super interesting. Actually makes a lot of sense. And so I guess, you know, what you're saying is that there's not like the river corridor is the apex of biodiversity. And then there's a nice bathtub ring effects as you go up each side of the canyon. The complexity of that ecological gradient is very high. When you undertook trying to assess the Grand Canyon as a landform and how it affects the distribution of species, You've divided that up into four different ways that that landform might have affect a species. So can you just explain how you have defined these different, different effects on, on species? Sure. 
All right, so the Grand Canyon as a landform has taken a while to understand because until George Billingsley and Haiti Hampton mapped the rim of Grand Canyon, we didn't really understand that there are two basins there. An eastern basin, this relatively isolated feature that the Little Colorado River and Perea River flow into, but uh, the western basin is a is much more open to the to the western deserts and southern deserts, and the two basins in Grand Canyon are separated by a steep gorge called the Muav Gorge. It's about 20 miles long. It's basically cliffs from river to rim. That's a natural barrier that we didn't really recognize until George Billingsley and Haiti Hampton put that map together and uh, allowed us to see where the rims of Grand Canyon actually actually lie. So that's been kind of a, a, a template, if you will, for, for how life can be uh, affected by, by the canyon as a, as a landform. There are four basic ways that, that a large deep canyon can influence the movement and the distribution of life within and around it. The first is as a barrier, and that's pretty obvious to anybody on the South Rim. You, know, you arrive on the South Rim, and holy cow, that's a major walk to get across that vast open space. Organisms on the rim, like the Grand Canyon ringlet butterfly that, that uh, lives just along the South Rim, can't get across to the North Rim. It, it, it suffers from kind of an insect version of ag agoraphobia where it can't, um, can't stand open spaces. So it's stuck on the South Rim and can't move across. Its habitat only is uh, right along the rim, so it can't actually go too far away from the South Rim either. The barrier effect also, though, works upstream and downstream. We, we talked about this natural division of the two basins of Grand Canyon. Most of our endemic species in Grand Canyon show up in the eastern basin, which is isolated. And that makes some sense. It's, they're genetically not able to, to move around very much. The organisms become specifically adapted to the environment they're in. Species like the Grand Canyon pink rattlesnake uh, is found only in that eastern basin. It can't pass that narrow Moab Gorge into the western basin, where there are five species of rattlesnakes that, uh, that likely would outcompete it. So uh, we have a very strong barrier effect. We also have a very strong corridor effect. Those low elevation settings in Grand Canyon, basically Sonoran Desert on the, on the floor of Grand Canyon. And that's a whole raft of 800 plant species and uh, hundreds of, of uh, animal and insect species that are desert dwellers that cannot live anywhere else in Northern Arizona other than right along the river there. They require hot, dry desert conditions that don't exist even at middle elevations in Grand Canyon. So there's a tremendous passage of desert species up from the western and southern deserts into the lower western basin of Grand Canyon. So uh, the corridor effect is, is quite strong. There's also a corridor effect coming down from Utah through the Colorado River system. Plants, again, plant propagules can get rafted down uh, on floods and deposited along the river. And, and as you move through Grand Canyon, some of those plant species just dwindle out. Within the canyon, there are refugia, there are caves, uh, and there are, particularly there are springs where long-term stable conditions allow unique forms to, to develop, and those species are completely restricted to, to those specific environments. Also, some slopes. Again, the north-facing slopes in the desert are quite rare. They're, they're refugia for all kinds of Canadian plant species, for example, and so those are also among the the refugia that we have in, in Grand Canyon. These are natural kind of microsite ecosystems, tiny ecosystems that support species that can live nowhere else in the, in the environment. So we have a barrier effect, a corridor effect, a, a refuge effect, and then lastly, there are some species like common raven, like uh, bighorn sheep, 
desert mule deer that can traverse the, the entire elevational expanse of Grand Canyon and aren't really restricted by the, by the canyon as a landform. However, in putting together the story of the distribution of life in Grand Canyon, about 70% of the, of the life forms we see there, at least the macro life forms, are uh, restricted uh, in their distribution in some way by this large deep canyon effect. So what would it be that a, a raven or a mule deer, what, what is going on that the, the landform has no effect on it? So when, I, when I'm talking about no effect on it, I'm talking about no genetic effect on it. Okay. In other words, they can traverse the rims of the canyon. They can, they can get down to the river if they, if they want to. It doesn't affect the, their, their genotypes. I got you. Um, yeah. Whereas these other organisms that, I, that I'm talking about, some of the endemic plants and, and the Grand Canyon big rattlesnake, their genetic structure is very much influenced by the isolation that, that Grand Canyon has, has uh, provides them. Okay. So you have an idea of what species fall into which of those four categories. So I'm curious, just how how did you collect data for this study? I mean, uh, well, what type of data was was collected, and how did you go about doing it? I started my studies in Grand Canyon 50 years ago, and at the time, even then, I was quite impressed with how little was actually known about the life of Grand Canyon. So much attention has gone to geology and to understanding geomorphic process there and the flow of the river and the sediment uh, distribution and whatnot. But so little had actually gone to biology. And through studies at the Museum of Northern Arizona with Steve Crothers and, and a really bold ecological inventory of the, of the river corridor uh, back in those early days, we began to compile information on the insect life, the plant life, all, all the macro life there. We've made just really tremendous headway with uh, putting together species lists and, under and understanding elevational distributions of all, of all those groups. What the studies have done is, is really open our eyes about the tremendous biodiversity in this landscape that, we, that really wasn't recognized before. And it also has pointed out some real strong and strange biogeographic anomalies. The river corridor, uh, lower elevations, support no horned lizards. This is maybe the only environment in the Southwest that doesn't support horned lizards. Similarly, no kangaroo rats in the river corridor. Kangaroo rats are completely ubiquitous all around the region, but none in the lower elevations of Grand Canyon. Some of these findings have taken decades to really uh, understand fully and uh, appreciate, but uh, the more time we spend looking at the biology of Grand Canyon, the more surprises we, we, we come up with in that, in that light. And also the, the number of, of unique species in the landscape, where I think we're just barely scratching the surface in, in terms of understanding how many unique life forms we have in this remarkable deep chasm. Right. So a lot of the work has been done through the Museum of Northern Arizona and the research done through that? Yes, through, uh, through the Museum of Northern Arizona, the, our biological research program spans almost a century now. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it's, um, it's been a, a long, slow uphill battle to try to get to pull this information together. It's, it's often not very well funded. So a lot of it's done just out of the love of being in the canyon and uh, through the good graces of the National Park Service and granting us permits to, to, to do the work. Uh, every species we encounter, of course, has a tremendous story to, to tell us about adaptation to this harsh and, and incredibly beautiful landscape. And you alluded to this earlier, but when you tally up the the effects 
that the landform, uh, being the Grand Canyon, has on species. You uh, said that about 70% of what you've looked at is somehow affected by the landform. Is that correct? Yes. And what I'm talking about there is a genetic or population constraint. 70% of, of the organisms we're talking about in Grand Canyon have some genetic imprint, if you will, of the landform on its genotype. How do you find that these large deep canyons stand up against the more standard landforms that are known for biogeography, such as the mountains or the islands or lakes? Yeah. Uh, very interesting there. The, the Paiute Indians word for Kaibab apparently means mountain lying down. So they looked at Grand Canyon as an inverted mountain. And that is so true on so many levels uh, with how the biological activity, the, the biogeography of, of canyons works. Think about a mountain range as a, as a dividing feature. The mountain range may arise through tectonic process, split a landscape into two parts. The animals living on one side can't get over the mountains, so they, they go off on their own genetic adventure, differing uh, from those on the other side of the mountain. And this is a biogeographic process called vicariance that two populations get divided and then gradually become unique. So this is a major form of speciation. So if you look at a mountain range, it's least productive at the highest elevations and more productive at the, uh, down at the bottom. The flow of energy is off the sides and downslope. And uh, in contrast to a canyon, the highest productivity may be in the, at the lowest elevations where it's warmest. So longer growing periods and also presence of water because the materials and the water is flowing downslope to, to come into the, into the canyon environment. And so whereas a mountain range is kind of shedding productivity at its highest elevations, large deep canyons might be more productive uh, in an in inverse way compared to the mountain range. Yeah. The comparison of large deep canyons to islands is, in, is interesting because large deep canyons are certainly mosaics of different habitats which can be quite a bit separated from, from each other, as in an island chain. But islands are separated by marine habitat that's really unsuitable for any kind of land animal. So movement between islands becomes very um, problematic and probabilistic. But in a uh, large deep canyon, it's an interconnected drainage basin that can be connected by water and can be connected by a terrestrial habitat too, depending on the canyon, but there is connectivity among these refugia in a, in a way that's quite a bit different than islands. So when we look at mountains, islands, and large deep canyons, they're, they're functioning in really radically different ways biogeographically. The idea of the large deep canyon biogeography, how readily could you apply this to other deep canyons. For sure, things would change in terms of latitude, uh, aspect of the canyon, things like that. But what would you have to know? What are some key features that would tell you if this phenomenon is happening in other deep canyons? Interestingly, there are appear to me to be only two types of canyons. One is a are the canyons that form between mountain ridges. Uh -huh. And the other is an incised feature like Grand Canyon, where water has cut down through rock over time in a, in a otherwise flat terrain. There seem to be two major uh, types of canyons. But mountainous terrain that can produce both types covers about a quarter of the Earth's surface. And there are a lot of large deep canyons that occur on the seafloor as well. Mm -hmm. The Hudson River, for example, in New York, or the Ganges River Canyon. So the applicability of the kind of information we're getting from Grand Canyon 
has rather wide uh, application around the world. Things you want to know uh, that, that it really seem to influence um, our canon are the direction that the canon is oriented. Right. So an east-west situation, that means the south side, at least in the northern hemisphere, has north-facing slopes and the north side will have south-facing slopes. The solar radiation budget limitations and the aspect uh, effects on temperature and perhaps erosion rates are uh, something we look at to be more common in an east-west oriented canyon. So canyons are quite common. The orientation matters. The latitude matters a lot because once we drift to latitudes higher than 23 degrees north or south of the equator, at those higher latitudes, the aspect effects become more pronounced. I think we have the capability of, of uh, mapping the potentially important canyons for biogeographic process globally. I'd love to get into those, those kind of analyses with somebody who's uh, interested in that. It would take a, you know, a lot of uh, spatial exploration of the Earth's surface to, to put that together. These are common processes that, that are going on throughout the world. Well, Larry, thanks so much for talking with Science Moab. It's really interesting and fascinating to hear about this ongoing work with biogeography. Really appreciate it. Peggy, thanks so much. It's really a delight to talk with you. Thanks. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.